Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Logically Faithful, where we are engaging culture redemptively and addressing suffering productively. One of the best ways we're doing that is by engaging in apologetical issues at the deepest philosophical, theological, and at times existential level. I have on the call here with me one of my intellectual heroes and one of the most foremost philosophers of religion in the world. One of the most cited and researched scholars at Oxford, from uh, Oxford University, Professor Richard Swinburne. Welcome, Professor. Well, thank you very much. It is an honor to have you. How is uh, how is the weather there today in Oxford? How is uh, how are things? How is uh, uh, the it's atmosphere? Raining. It's been raining today, but the rain has stopped and the sun has come out. But it is. Uh, is autumn, or as you call it, the fall. <laughs> the fall, yes. Well, uh, we hope we can shed some light into the inner reign of many people on a philosophical level today. You have just released uh, a book about um, our bodies, our souls. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of your recent work? And then we'll go ahead in the back and discuss some of the things I do have in mind today, such as the problem of evil, the Trinity, universalism, and uh, light things of that nature. <laughs> well, this uh, new book, Are We Bodies or Souls, uh, does build on uh, uh, an earlier book of mine called Mind, Brain and Free Will, but it deals only with the issue of mind and body, not with the issue of free will. And it is um, uh, intended for a wider audience than uh, mere philosophers. Um, but it does have some serious philosophical meat in it. And what I'm arguing for is the doctrine known as substance dualism. This is the view that each of us, each human, has two parts, our body and our soul, and they interact. But they're separate parts, uh, and, I also, and my version of substance dualism holds that the essential part of each of us is our soul. That is to say, um, if our soul goes on existing, we go on existing. But if our body goes on existing and our soul doesn't, we don't go on existing. Mm. So that's what I'm arguing for. Okay. And um, I produced a number of different arguments for that position. Um, the main uh, two, really, basically. First, I argue from the fact that um, uh, from recent scientific discoveries, um, one of which is, um, if I uh, sort of must uh, uh, summarize some of the scientific evidence, yes. um, the human brain on which consciousness depends, um, and all our memories and beliefs and so on depend on that, and in particular they depend on the top part of our brain, the cerebral cortex. Now the cortex uh, has two parts, the left part and the right part, the left cerebral cortex and the right cerebral cortex. And uh, the, the parts of the brain which underlie any particular memory, uh, they seem to have uh, corresponding parts in uh, each of the two hemispheres. So um, uh, some people, very unfortunate people, who have a bad form of epilepsy in one uh, of the cortices, say in the left cortex, yes. uh, can have it taken out. And, uh, but nevertheless, on the whole, they retain most of their memories and desires and beliefs. On the other hand, uh, if the 
uh, if, if the cancer or other disease is in the right hemisphere, they can have that taken out and they, uh, instead of having the left one taken out and they still retain their memories, etc. So, um, all we really need in order to exist is one of these cerebral cortices. Mm-hmm. Now, a second scientific advance, not really a discovery, is that scientists are learning to um, repair severed nerves and not merely peripheral nerves, but uh, uh, spinal nerves. And that suggests that one day, one day, not the next decade or the one after that, but perhaps the one after that, they will be able to transplant parts of brains so that, for example, my left hemisphere could be transplanted and put in somebody else whose left hemisphere has been removed and my right hemisphere could be put in somebody else whose right hemisphere has been removed. Hmm. And then we would have two separate persons. They would each have um, a substantial bit of me. They would each be able to claim um, to be me. And they certainly would because they would have my memories and um, beliefs, other beliefs and so on. Sounds like science fiction. But they couldn't both be me. Yes. And that suggests that being me doesn't consist in having a part of me or doesn't consist in having my memories. It must consist in something else um, compatible with any either of these people who have received one of my hemispheres. Um, it's all the evidence uh, is perfectly compatible with that being me and that being not me. But there must be some difference between. <laughs> there must be something about them that makes one of me and one of them not me. Mm. And that can only be if it's an immaterial part, because we know what's happened to all the material parts, and they're not enough to make the difference. So there's a scientific style arm I see. argument uh, suggesting that. Um, what makes me me must be so. But I also have a version of a very traditional argument, an argument put forward by Descartes. That is just, um, and I don't think you want me to talk a great length about this. I wonder, uh, is this uh, dealing with the uh, real distinction argument? Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, go ahead and clarify, uh, Professor, what's the difference between your version of substance dualism and that advocated by René Descartes' Cartesian dualism? Oh, it's not. I am um, a Cartesian dualist. Uh, but when I said um, my version of it, mm-hmm. I was contrasting it with um, a different version, which is usually attributed to Thomas Aquinas, uh, that says that both parts are necessarily for us. That's to say, if we've only got our soul, it wouldn't be us. Or uh, We need the body as well. The mm-hmm. soul is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Right. Whereas I'm arguing that it is indeed sufficient, and that's what Descartes thought. But then you'll be arguing against um, a lot of the work in recent cognitive science and people like Richard's, um, let's say, the Churchillans and uh, people like emergent dualists and others who argue that the body is an essential part of being human. And some Christian philosophers in themselves have argued that and when God made man out of the dust of the earth, he wasn't fully a human until he given him a body and a soul together. How do you respond to that um, uh, psychosomatic unity that makes us human? It's not just a soul. Well, I uh, emphasize your word fully. Yes. Of course, we need bodies in order to 
um, uh, interact with people in order to, to have and do what is worth having and doing. If it was only our soul, we wouldn't be able to talk to each other, um, feel each other, and um, we'd be entirely on our own. Um, so uh, it's a very good thing we do have bodies, and the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the body emphasizes that. But my point is that it would still be us, even if we didn't have the body, even if our well-being consists in having the body. Um, okay. I don't think Aquinas is really uh, uh, against that in any big way, but um, uh, formally speaking, he does think the body is necessary. On the other hand, he allows that, in a sense, it's, it's in a sense, it's us in the intermediate period between our death and the general resurrection. Aquinas held that in that intermediate period, uh, the saints go to heaven, and some people on the way of sanctity uh, go to purgatory, and right. other people go to hell. But um, he, he's really to believe that it's the saints and not just a part of the saints who are in heaven. He has to believe that uh, what constitutes them is the soul. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't think the difference is in any way serious between my view and that of Aquinas. But formally speaking, it is Descartes' view rather than Aquinas's. So what do you As do? To I'm sorry, Professor. The other views you mentioned. Yes. Uh, well, they're just badly mistaken. And <laughs> I have all sorts of arguments against that. <laughs> okay. And then, uh, some of them say that um, such things as uh, our thoughts are really brain events. Mm -hmm. Well, um, uh, if you are fully to describe the world, um, a, a description of what's going on would, of course, include all the events to which we have public access, including events in our brain. Uh, anyone can find out about these as well as anyone else can. But a full description of the world has got to include our thoughts and feelings as well as the public events. And um, uh, they are separate from the public events since each of us has a private access to them that other people don't have, so there must be separate goings on. Mm -hmm. So those who say that thoughts and feelings are just brain events are simply refusing to, to look at the data. Um, and that's what I would say to that. But once they admit that, they've moved to a stage which is known as property dualism. Yes. That's the view that, yes, there are two kinds of property, for properties of thoughts and feelings and properties of uh, brain events such as um, uh, firing electrically and uh, being connected with other brain events in various ways. Um, and uh, so they, uh, the property dualist allows there are two sorts of events, but they're events in one thing, which is our body on the property dualist view. Mm -hmm. But then I argue that that cannot deal with such phenomena as the ones which I just described a few minutes ago of what would happen if the brain was transplanted. Um, mm -hmm. And um, uh, so... Uh, I've got to go beyond property dualism, and going beyond property dualism takes one to substance dualism, which is saying not merely are there two different sorts of property, 
but there are two different parts to us, two different substances. Interesting. Okay, let me let me push on this one a little bit because I deal with so many naturalistic colleagues in my atmosphere here in the States, and I mean academic atmosphere per se. Uh, for example, a person who suffers from severe neurological disorders such as Down syndrome or manifold disabilities that uh, traumatically alter the brain chemistry and brain injuries, causing dramatic changes in their personality um, and brain injury associations and other social, other medical facilities and neurological facilities have indicated over and over again that if you alter the brain, whether through brainwashing, phys- uh, psychologically, or physiologically through some serious damage such as falling off a motorcycle, you can literally alter the very personality of the person, as the age, you know, age-old case in 1848 of Phineas Gage indicates. Um, can you respond to that type of objection regarding the psychosomatic unity of the body and soul being so integrated that it's separating them with the it's not in any way an objection to anything I've said um, because like Descartes I believe in my uh, as I would put it soul brain interaction Mm -hmm. of course goings on in the brain affect goings on in the soul and I will add the other way around too goings on in the soul affect goings on in the brain but that's obvious from, you needn't bring in uh, these difficult cases you mentioned, but the mere fact that if you stick a pin into me, it uh, um, disturbs my nerves, sends up a signal to the brain, uh, the brain causes me to have a feeling. This is um, causation from brain to uh, soul. And likewise, when I form a decision and uh, carry it out, this is because my intention, a brain uh, soul event, causes my brain to to cause my body to do certain things. And so there's a two-way causal interaction. And this is not merely um, uh, a matter of uh, isolated events doing this, but mm-hmm. as you say, um, considerable brain disturbances can make considerable uh, disturbances to the way we think and feel and conversely of course um, um, uh, if we uh, uh, have a happy and outward going personality and uh, uh, we are well disciplined and so on that is going to affect our bodily health Okay, and that'll make a difference on who we are as a person, and as well as mentally speaking, having too much alcohol as opposed to having too much rest. <laughs> Most of these things affect us on a physiological and spiritual level. Yes, well, there is all that interaction. Though I do also happen to believe that there is uh, that not a, not all our thoughts and feelings, above all, not all our intentions, are fully caused by our brain states. That is to say, we have a certain freedom within limits to uh, choose what to do and therefore we can alter our brain states in ways that we are not caused to do so by our brain. Mm -hmm. That is a further position and uh, one I also argued for but um, uh, not what I'm discussing in, in the book that we were talking about. If you were to provide um, uh, the scriptural basis for what you're talking about, um, would you align that, for example, when when the Lord Jesus was on the cross, he said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. He was speaking about him as a, the, um, the spiritual aspect, not the physical, indicating that 
the full person will be there, not uh, indicating that that's a substance dualism there in his in his theology. Uh, yes, you mean he was saying that he and his humanity would uh, um, be talking to the thief in paradise? Yes, quite so. Mm -hmm. His body uh, remained on the cross and was buried. And then same with the Lord Jesus's body and soul interacted. We connected together at the resurrection. I imagine you would go that route, or is that a yes. whole different discussion? And of course, the Christian doctrine is uh, that um, uh, even if uh, at death body and soul are disunited, we uh, in a general resurrection are given a body, and I think that becomes our body in virtue of its connection to our soul. <coughs> It needn't, in my view, consist of parts of the original body, though perhaps sometimes it does. But it um, is our body, in virtue of being connected to our soul. My particular body in the resurrection will be my body, because it is connected to my soul. And I think the doctrine of the resurrection of the body is indeed very important for Christianity, because, as I mentioned earlier, and as you emphasize one can only be fully <laughs> fully uh, uh, fully functioning proper person um, if one does have a body through which one acts on the world what do you think let me let me conclude this discussion on, on substance dualism I'm going to move on to the problem of evil but uh, people uh, like great scholars like Nancy Murphy and other Christian scholars and even um, some great intellectual scholars on the other side of the fence of, of naturalism. What do you think um, leads them to embrace these physicalist positions? It, it can be their lack of knowledge or lack of expertise because they seem to be well-read, maybe not well-read as much as you are. But why would people embrace this, do you think, um, this naturalistic perspective? What makes it so attractive to people? Well, as regards... Um uh, non-religious people and this particular view I'm going to mention has influenced religious people as well they've been enormously and rightly impressed by the development of the physical sciences over the past several centuries all sorts of things which were in the physical world which were puzzling mm -hmm. we have been able now to explain we've been able to learn a lot about what are the laws of nature what is matter made of as a result of which we can send men to the moon, and so on and so on. Um, and this has suggested to people, look, um, physics is immensely successful in explaining things. Um, <laughs> yes, so, it is. Uh, it must be able to explain everything. Mm. Um, but that doesn't take account of the vast difference between the things that you can explain which are the public the things <coughs> and the things to which each of us has privileged access which are the mental things and it simply doesn't take that into account but why uh, it, it, it tends to react and say well um, those mental things if, must be physical things because otherwise they would be mysterious and uh, science has been so successful that uh, in the end nothing will be mysterious. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, is clearly the, the um, motivation behind um, uh, scientists who don't have any religious motivation. Why do religious people, or some religious people, yes, um, uh, adopt a physicalist view? Mm -hmm. Well, Again, they are very much influenced by the climate of opinion. 
um, which uh, what I've just mentioned, this view, well, physics has been so successful that it couldn't explain anything. But also, uh, and I think that's really the main motivation, but also that they, um, <laughs> the position I embrace is called dualism, and they seem, I, I think one reason why they don't like it is because it seems to suggest that, well, uh, the soul is a good thing and the body is a bad thing. Of course, I'm not saying that, but uh, there are people in the past who uh, uh, have said that. And um, uh, the view I'm advocating really dates back to Plato. And Plato seemed to think that the really important thing were the non-physical things and the body was a bit of a nuisance and a distraction. And of course, I'm not saying that, but um, it's because people, uh, Christian <coughs> people, do understand that uh, what ha what we do with our bodies and what happens to the bodies can be a good thing or can be a bad thing, and what we need them in order to be um, fully functioning persons. Um, they, they feel that substance dualism casts doubt on that, and. Okay. Um, they, they want to represent themselves as being in touch with the modern world and also in touch with that, the Christian tradition of the well, Christian doctrine of, of the resurrection of the body, which seems to suggest that, uh, well, we don't even exist unless we have a body, which in fact is not the Christian doctrine. Mm. Okay, this is helpful. I know it's hard to seep into the motivations of people, but it's helpful to understand the, the cultural times and the shifts in, in, in philosophy and theology. Uh, okay, let's, let's shift our conversation, Professor, to the... Um, unless you want to say any final words here about substance dualism. Uh, uh, I was going to talk about Descartes' argument, oh, own okay. argument for the soul, but yes. I think you would better... Leave that to people who want to read the book. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I recommend the book there, especially since now it's more for a lay per audience. Wonderful. All right. Uh, let's talk about the problem of evil. You've written extensively on this, and I recommend your literature on that. Uh, currently, we have over 10,000 uh, uh, current states of conflicts around the world, from the Afghanistan to the Mexican drug war, Syrian conflict, the Yemen crisis, which is terrible, claiming over 20,000 lives just in the last few days. It's, it's a mess. A Somalian civil war, Iraq conflict still going on, Boko Haram. Um, these are things, not to mention the personal crisis these people face on an individual level. Um, so the, the common problem of evil, as we've discussed it in this show multiple times, um, uh, going back to David Hume and uh, Epicurus and others, uh, argues that God cannot, um, either there's something wrong with the, the three major attributes of God, his omniscience, omnipotence, or his omnipresence, or he doesn't exist. You have responded extensively to this uh, regarding the problem of evil. Can you give us a cursory view of your view on the problem of evil and suffering? Then maybe we can get into some questions and see where that goes. Yes, indeed. Uh, I certainly believe God is omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly good. And uh, the problem, therefore, is why does such a being allow evil to occur? Um, now, I certainly think, in virtue of his omnipotence, God could just by that no notice at all stop all suffering. Mm -hmm. He could, as it were, um, give us all uh, a drug so that we, we felt no pain. 
and he could put us in a state where we were all um, phased out and very happy in a half hazy heroin state. <laughs> uh, but of course, um, he doesn't. Um, and why, therefore, uh, being why should he allow evil to occur if he's perfectly good? Well, because a perfectly good being wants rather more for us than just having the kicks of happiness and uh, um, absence of pain. He wants us to be able to make a difference to the world. Different, And if we're really to make a difference to the world, we must be able to make it better or worse than what we find it. If God just allowed us choices, free choices, between alternative good states, we could choose to read this book or that book, uh, we could choose to go on holiday in this place or that place, we wouldn't really have much, contra uh, much influence on the world. Hmm. Uh, God delegates responsibility for the world, and, and that really means he gives us big choices about hmm. whether we can do good to others or do harm to others. And if he's to give us these big choices, then there is always the possibility that we will do harm to each other. And of course, many of the, not all, but many of the evils which you have mentioned are the result of either human positive action hurting people or human knowing negligence, uh, not interfering to stop some evil occurring. And it's necessary that <laughs> um, there shall be this possibility if humans are to be not just uh, um, feelers of pleasure, but real agents who uh, cooperate with God in making a difference to the world. So that's stage one. Okay. Then, of course, uh, people rightly point out that there are various evils in the world um, which are not human responsibility. Um, diseases that we simply haven't learned how to cure, effects uh, <coughs> of earthquakes and storms and so on. Um, and so they ask, what's the point of those? And I should add, there are sort of the effects of old age and um, all sorts of humans become weak, incompetent and unable to do things and so on, and uh, feel a lot of pain in their old age. So why that? You're right. And my answer to that is, um, although uh, it's not necessary for us, for our freedom, that we should have these things, it is necessary for uh, a certain sort of freedom, which is especially valuable. Now, I've mentioned it's good we should have these earlier choices between good and evil. But it's a particular feature of humans that each time we do a good deed of a certain sort, yes. it becomes easier to do a good deed of that sort next time. And conversely, if when it's very difficult you show courage, it's easier to show courage next time. If you give in and uh, go, go along with some uh, pressure from somebody to uh, um, engage in a criminal conspiracy <coughs> difficulty one time it becomes natural the next time now uh, that means we have not merely 
the freedom to make a difference to the world, but the freedom to make a difference to ourselves as to what sort of character we have. Mm. Now, if you suppose that there weren't any of these things like diseases and accidents and so on, some of us, not all of us, but some of us, wouldn't have very much opportunity for character forming. Um, uh, we live, many of us certainly in this country, uh, live comfortable lives and uh, we don't have uh, serious choices. <laughs> Uh, but we do all have serious choices in the end because um, we all get ill through diseases we can't cure and through old age that we can't put off and we have accidents and uh, we are buffeted by uh, storms and earthquakes and so on. Yes. And these give us the opportunity to as to how to deal with these. If I get very ill, for example, I have certain choices as to how to deal with this situation. I can be patient, I can remember all the good times, and I can be grateful for my life. And um, if I react in this way, I am gradually forming myself as a good person. Likewise, uh, my friends also have choices as to whether to ignore my illness or to come and uh, visit me and uh, be kind to me. And, try and help me to get better. So uh, the, these things we don't control provide us with opportunities for character formation, uh, one way or the other, um, which we wouldn't otherwise have. And so um, all of these evils, which remember they only, <laughs> they only last a certain in a small period of time, um, no evil lasts more than 90 years or so, and that is a very small period of time in the scale of eternity, and, and Christians are committed to the view that their life goes on after death, and um, that this world is a world where they can form uh, themselves as suitable for uh, life after death. Okay, fascinating. Um, and um, so all these evils there to serve a good purpose, to enable us to form ourselves in the world. And that, I think, is the basic answer. So basically it comes down to something Augustine said years ago. The omniscience of God would not allow such evil in the world and suffering unless the omnipotence of God can bring about such a state where there is more good at the end or more joy more glory to him at the end than anything else. Would you agree with that assessment? Uh, yes, but it's not the whole story. Of course, that of course. To, that is to say, uh, it's not merely that in the end everything turns out well. It doesn't necessarily turn out well because mm. we uh, um, may abuse this freedom. Right. But uh, the point is, at each time when we have a choice, it is a good thing for us that we do have that choice then and there. And it's a good thing for those who are affected by this choice that they have the opportunity, as it were, to benefit the chooser by their availability to um, uh, what happens to them by the way he chooses. Uh, that is to say, it would be an, uh, could be an argument against what I have said uh, to point out that, well, Yes, it's a great choice for me if I can choose whether or not to hurt you, but it's not very nice for you mm -hmm. uh, that I can <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that you can be the victim. 
And um, part of the answer, of course, is that you also have choices. And being in this situation, you can choose how to deal with it. And therefore, it's a benefit for you that you have choices that you can uh, cope with. And of course, you don't always recognize that. Right. Um, but sometimes you do. Even, even in the Holocaust, you know, some people have come out saying, it was good for me that I went through this because only so did I learn to be unselfish. Now, I'm not saying, please don't say, quote me and say, I think the Holocaust is a good thing. Of course, <laughs> a bad thing. But uh -huh. What I'm saying is, not allowing it to occur it makes available for everybody involved in it a certain sort of choice, which if they make the right choice, okay. will be a good for them. Free will then is of a paramount, essential um, quality or essential quality in your response to the problem of evil. Let me push. Let me let me push back on that a little bit. Uh, God himself is the ultimately free being, yet God does not do evil, neither can he. But he, according to your argument, you must allow freedom in order for the person to be good. Freedom to, is to do evil or do otherwise. Would that also include us in the, uh, the, the, the uh, post-incarnate state uh, as, as believers in heaven? Uh, we, we will be with God and him and, and the angels. But we will not be choosing evil in any shape or form, at least according to what we're reading in the New Heavens and the New Earth. Um, well, you know, Hammond, there's uh, one or two things I disagree with there. Yes. Um, uh, what I'm saying is not merely that we need free will. You can have free will to choose whether to read this book or that book. Right. Um, what we need for character formation and so on is free will to choose between good and evil. And um, uh, that... <laughs> choice is a particularly human choice. God himself does not have that choice because God, um, being <laughs> omnipotent, is free from all the bad influences which um, uh, we are subject to. He needs no character formation. <laughs> right. uh -huh. I said he needs no character formation. That's right. Uh, and that is, uh, as it were, why, why, why he's gift to us is so great because he gives us something he doesn't have himself um, but so uh, uh, going on to heaven um, well um, I certainly think that um, if we form a very good character and we have the choice in life gradually of course over time to make ourselves a good character um, uh, we will still at the end uh, be tempted to do evil because we will be subject to bad desires. Um, but uh, if we are taken to heaven, we will not be subject to bad desires. Uh, all the things that um, incline us to uh, do wrong will not be there. And so um, we will not have the choice of doing evil but remember it will be by our choice that we are don't have that choice by our choice on earth that we do not have that choice after earth but how do you explain if i may this gets me into tangent here but the uh, the choice that lucifer made who had no negative influences at all to choose away from god being a spiritual individual being with choice he had no bad influences per se well that is not uh, uh, a creed of doctrine 
uh, as, to, as to whether there are devils and what they do. You won't find that in the Nicene Creed. Mm. Uh, so um, I think this is a matter of uh, speculation here, and um, I have no views about that. That's fair enough. Um, okay. uh, uh, there may well be devils, and there may be, well be a, a super devil, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know uh, how long he had to choose things or, or not. This is all uh, speculation. Hmm. which is not central to Christianity. Hmm. It's not central, but it is a, a, a rock pillar part of it for so many centuries. Um, but anyway, oh, we can... No, oh, wait a moment, wait a moment, wait a moment. Um, <laughs> for many centuries, Christians have believed that the Earth is only uh, uh, 6,000 or 5,000 years old. Uh-huh. But this wasn't a Christian doctrine. <laughs> it wasn't something put in the creeds. No. And uh, uh, talk of devils and what their powers are and so on mm-hmm. is not an item in the creeds mm. yes. okay just that peripheral things but the mere fact think christians have believed certain things mm-hmm. it, it is not uh, <laughs> these things have turned turned out to be false um that doesn't uh, count against christianity unless christianity by uh through through the church and what it has authenticated and what it's declared to be orthodoxy or heresy. Um, the, uh, if, if somebody had discovered something contrary to a, a central item, the creed, that mm-hmm. would count against Christianity, but okay. mere beliefs that have got attached to it are not central to it. Okay. All right, we can, we can leave the, the devils alone for now then. <laughs> All right, the, um, the, let me conclude the problem evil with uh, touching on the, um, the existential, the evidential part of it. In 1880, the most famous passage you quoted, which you, you're sure you run across multiple times, you even addressed some things in your book on the providence of in the evil of God regarding the, uh, the, the, the point made uh, to Alyosha by his brother, and the brother's karma was off of a child of five who not of her own free will, is beaten to her body's one big bruise, fed excrement, left alone at night to die, and her mother heard her cries and did nothing about it. And the argument is, how could a kind and loving God be unresentful to her tears? How could he ignore this little child? Is it necessary for him to edify or create the edifice of all human existences and bring glory to himself at the end in order for this one little child to suffer? This is this is the evidential problem that you can walk into the, the the cancer ward here in Chicago and just feel the emotional and evidential impact of that. Let's address that a little bit. Uh, sure, but of course, Dostoevsky uh, is a novelist, and the, uh, the particular incident didn't happen. But mm. you are quite right. Of course, there are many times that that sort of thing does occur. Okay, now remember that in this circumstance. God is, of course, very concerned for the child, but God is also very concerned for the parent who abuses the child. There's always forgotten, just as in the Holocaust, God minds about the God minds about the concentration camp guards and commanders just as much as He minds about the, the sufferers. Um, and um, indeed, He's more concerned, in a sense for the parents and the concentration camp does because he knows that they are on the edge of making themselves totally immune to moral considerations. Mm. And uh, um, when people 
people are almost there, almost make themselves like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and they are sometimes moved by seeing something really awful that they could do something about. Um, and um, you find that all the time, as it were, pretty, some pretty bad people just sometimes have a spark of consciousness and when they do that because they, they see that there is something absolutely awful that they could prevent. And um, therefore, in the, if there is an abused child and an abusing mother, yeah. and the mother has got... <laughs> is on the way to losing her ability to, to recognize wrong, uh, the child's cries may move her, and the child may be the vehicle of salvation to her. And, um, of course, the child doesn't realize that. No. Nevertheless, that may be the case. Let me take a slight analogy. Go ahead. Um, um, suppose um, you have two twin baby daughters. And um, one of them uh, is uh, seriously ill with brain cancer, and the only way in which she can be cured is by uh, having a brain marrow transplant from the other one. Mm. And suppose that the other one is, uh, of course, developed, being this a bit, I don't know if it's, um, uh, these are medical facts are quite correct, but suppose the other one will have to suffer quite a lot for quite a lot of her life if she gives the transplant. Now, of course, they are babies, they can't decide. Would you, as a parent, allow the transplant to take place? If it does take place, then they will both live. If it doesn't take place, uh, the sick one will die. Would you allow the transplant? Well, of course, you would have agonies. Of course. But nevertheless, you might allow the transplant. Uh, uh, because you would think of the survival of the first one as an even more worth having than uh, the absence of pain for the second one. Mm -hmm. And um, what that illustrates is that <coughs> if someone can be benefited in a big way by the suffering of somebody else. Um, mm -hmm. A very good person may allow the somebody else to suffer a lot. And um, of course, God could, uh, in that particular instance, um, uh, just do, uh, just immediately make uh, the sick one better. Mm -hmm. But um, it's not logically possible for God uh, to um, uh, make some bad person good just like that um, because the good the good that God wants is that the other person that the, the bad person shall choose to do a good action God cannot bring that about but what he can do is to put the bad person in a situation where that they, they uh, such an extreme situation that they might well make a good choice. And of course, if they do make a good choice once, then it'll be easier next time and they may be on the way to salvation. And so the suffering of the child, which is indeed a terrible thing, may be for the good of the parent. 
And if it is for the good of the parent, then it is also for the good of the child. Because if we, if we are the vehicle of good to others, that is a good to us. But of course, of course, of course, this can only last a rather limited amount of time. Mm. But it does only last a very limited amount of time. In this particular case, not 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 the mere ninety years, but only a year or two, because um, in this sort of situation, the child would die um, if it went on for long. But uh, it is terrible. But it's only if there are some really terrible things that bad people can be saved sometimes. Mm. You think there's some kind of utilitarianism in play here? No. No? Um, I'm not adding up the goods. Uh, what I would say is that no, <coughs> um, uh, it's never good to, uh, um, as it were, do an act which is only good because the benefit to one person um, outweighs the harm to another. But the point is that it's for the sufferer, it's always a good. It's always a good for the sufferer to be the vehicle of good to others. You see this by some rather easier and mundane examples. Um, uh, suppose um, there, there's a railway crash uh, because the signals don't work properly. Okay. And uh, somebody is killed in it. And um, as a result of the somebody being killed, um, there's a commission of inquiry and the signals are um, put right and uh, say that this won't happen to anybody else. Now, after this sort of event, parents often say, um, well, it's very sad he was killed, but at any rate, his death had some good effect. And that they, they were thinking of it, you know, it was <laughs> good for him his life was in that way useful. Now take a, take a more full-blooded uh, example. Um, in a war, in a war where uh, some small country is oppressed by a big country mm -hmm. and um, some soldier in the small country uh, is killed and he is killed fighting a just war which is eventually, let us suppose, successful. Okay. Now, in most countries, apart from our own sort of country in the Western world in the 21st century, it was thought of as a great good for the soldier, that he was, his life was of use, enormous use to his country. Um, the Romans were in particular very conscious of this. Um, and uh, they didn't have a great belief necessarily in that they were worthwhile after life, but they did have a great belief in the value of a life being given for one's country. Now, um, as it were, uh, if that intuition is right, that the goodness of our life doesn't consist solely in the pleasures or pains that we have, but the value that it has for others, then even the abused child life is a good one. I know it sounds cruel to yes, say that, yeah. and it would be uh, cruel if well, this went on for a long time. But nevertheless, in the scale of eternity, um, uh, it is a benefit for the child. Hmm.
Mm. And you would agree, maybe if we can wrap this uh, discussion up on the problem of evil, Genesis fifty twenty, as Joseph said to his brothers, um, "As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it to bring good." Yes. And I suppose um, with the omnipotence of God, the omniscience of God, together He can take any situation and uh, bring about some good for it, specifically for those who are loved by Him and called according well, to His purpose. Uh, no, he can, he can make it possible for us to bring about some good. Mm. That, of course, is a good, but He cannot guarantee that we will choose the good there. Mm, that's interesting with your position on uh, libertarian freedom, right, Professor? Yeah. Okay. All right, let's move to the next discussion, which actually leads me to um, the universalism issue I want to discuss with you a little bit. So I've been reading a book by Thomas Talbot called The Inescapable Love of God, who goes into exegete of Scripture, on the concept of Christian universalism. God is such a loving being that he, his love is so powerful as the highest sumoboyum of the universe that ultimately, at the end of it, the day, at the end of eternity, sooner all will be redeemed. Let's just discuss that. What's your position on this? Um, what the Christians have generally called a heresy throughout um, our history. Well, I think it's up to us what happens after our life. Uh, but um, God is very keen that all humans should be saved. Uh, and um, nevertheless, as a result of our choices on earth, we make ourselves good or bad people. And sometimes we make ourselves, or some people make themselves so very bad people that they lost all sense of, of good and evil. Um, there's a passage in um, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago, mm -hmm. uh, where he discusses the concentration camp guards. And he said that there's a difference between some of them. Some of them just had a spark of morality left, and that connects with what I was saying a little earlier. Um, some of them have a spark of morality left, mm -hmm. others of them have, have simply lost that. They, they don't have any moral sense anymore. That's through their own continued and deliberate bad choices. Now, what would a, God, a good God do with that sort of person? Well, of course, he could force on the person, <laughs> perhaps, but um, we're forcing a person to be the sort of person they had chosen not to be, and that's not necessarily a very good thing, in fact it isn't. Um, and so, I'm inclined to think that certainly all who wish to be saved, who really wish to be saved, uh, will be saved. Um, and Aquinas made the remark that um, with regard to this, that if anyone in hell were to repent of their sins, they would be immediately taken to heaven. But of course he thinks that no one in hell would uh, uh, repent of their sins. That's why they're there. Um, so uh, my take on that is um, uh, people only, only don't go to heaven in the end whether directly or via purgatory they, they get there, if they want to get there. Hmm. Uh, but they, if they don't want to get there, they don't go there. But And um, many people, yeah. uh, the bad people, won't want to go to heaven because um, heaven is a place of uh, home for good people. It's a place where people do the things that good people do. But 
um, above all, worshipping God and no doubt helping him in his further projects. <coughs> they won't want to do that, so they wouldn't be happy there. And um, so inevitably there's going to be uh, different fates for different kinds of people. I suppose no, other, no people mm. will in the end be totally bad, but right. some people do give the impression of getting on the way to in the, being in that state. Then God, of course, has a choice um, what to do with these bad people. And I'm not a, averse to the idea that he might, if that's what the bad people want, just eliminate them. But um, if he doesn't, then they're bound to be rather unhappy because um, they will want to do bad things. And uh, although there's a point in them being allowed to on Earth, there's no point in them being allowed to after Earth, and so they won't be able to do them. And so inevitably, they will be unhappy. But like you mentioned with um, um, the Gulag uh, Akabelago, the line, uh, it's also Nisa has been famous, famous for saying this, the line between good and evil is not between parties or classes or religions, but between every heart. There's no good person, fully good person, fully bad person. I was in, under the impression that heaven is not for good people, it's for forgiven people. Uh, well, uh, it, is, it, is, it is for forgiven people, but um, uh, there's a, quite a part of Christianity which is believed that um, uh, the, the not every deathbed penitent goes straight to heaven. Mm. Uh, they need to be purged of the, their inclinations before they get there. Mm. Um, it is for people who uh, it is for good people, and a fair, and um, a necessary part of being good is to have repented of your sins. And if we do repent of our sins, God will forgive us. Um, but um, uh, and of course, if it's true repentance, it will lead to full goodness. But um, I think that I think it would have to be very full repentance yeah. for that to that, to yeah. straight away. That's where the grace of God comes in, right? Yeah, huh? yeah, the grace of God to allow uh, that. Well, yes, of course. But once again, God gives us freedom, so, so as to ensure that um, our, penit our uh, repentance is genuine by mm. us continuing to um, <laughs> show the change of direction which our repentance indicates. So how then, um, if I may summarize this... this uh, it's, uh, we can't go on forever, can uh, we? <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, we can stop that, but I want to summarize this discussion on uh, universalism with this one verse, yeah. and I want to get your response to it. Uh, Kurt... Uh, conscious eternal torment via Revelations 14.11 and the smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever. Um, that, how does that square with your, um, uh, your concept of the omnipotence and providence and love of God being not able to bring about the redemption of those who willfully turn from him? Isn't God is such a being so that even he can create a state of affairs that even those who are most willfully against him will ultimately come to a state of redemption? You can't do that. You can't make them so choose. Mm. Uh, there's a logical impossibility there to make somebody freely choose the good. Okay. Uh, as I was saying earlier, what he can't do is impose a character on them contrary to their wishes 
um, but he respects their wishes. Um, hell, if there is a hell, is for those who want to be there. Mm. But coming back to the biblical texts, um, you don't have to take this talk of burning and so on seriously. The point is that they'll be miserable. Their misery doesn't necessarily consist in that. Mm. So I'm saying the misery of the bad consists in them wanting to hurt people and there being no people to hurt. And if your desires are frustrated like that, inevitably you're going to be unhappy. Um, and um, Jesus, of course, um, uh, made a number of statements in the Gospels about um, the bad being thrown into the fire um, that uh, will not be extinguished. But if you take those statements literally, um, if you throw something into a fire which will not be extinguished, uh, the something ceases to exist. The fire may go on forever, but the something ceases to exist. So I don't think he's necessarily committed to uh, an everlasting hell. Conscious torment. Of course. Um, and the book of Revelation is um, not something for which one could appeal straightforwardly to sentences for the establishment of doctrine. It's a vision. Okay. Um, a vision of possibilities which... Uh, um, the very large outlines of which one can take, but uh, um, one shouldn't uh, interpret a poem line by line, as it were. Okay. Um, in the interest of time, I want to respect your time. Let me uh, g give you some quick uh, questions and give you just quick answers. And if you want to elaborate, you can, but for now, just quick ones. Um, is Jesus the only way to heaven? The redemption through Christ's death and vicarious suffering? Yes, but okay. of course, um, if someone doesn't know about, hasn't been presented with the Christian alternative <clears throat> on earth, then they've got to be presented with it after earth. But if they have made themselves good people on earth, although they don't know about Christ, then they will naturally embrace Christ when they do know about him. Uh, but one way or the other <coughs> in this world or the or on the entrance to the next, they have to accept Christ, yes. Okay, quick one. Why must God be a trinity? Uh, how long did you say? <laughs> oh, um, okay, so God I'm is... So, um, I'm sorry to be... Uh, yes, that would be uh, that would take a whole book because you've written the book. Yeah, and uh, it would take me quite a time to answer that. Okay, uh, I I can reference people to your published work on the the Trinity one there. Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, I think the best presentation of it is in a recent article. Um, uh, I mean, you could refer them to chapter two, I think it is, of my book, Was Jesus God? Okay. Um, which is uh, much more readable than the, the book, The Christian God. But there's also an article in religious studies within the last year, I think it's December of last year, but I may have got the date slightly wrong, mm -hmm. of the social theory of the Trinity, which um, uh, does... Um, I think presents <coughs> theory not merely fully, but justifies it as the best extrapolation from the uh, statement, uh, creedal statements of the church.
Okay, uh, I'll reference people to that in the, in the article there. Um, in the interest of time, which, um, which we don't have much of right now, let me uh, go ahead and summarize this interview. Uh, Professor, do you have any uh, final comments or thoughts about some of the most recent work that you're working on? Anything that you can, we can look forward to seeing from you? <laughs> I just finished this book on the cell. Yes. Uh, um, I'm not in, currently in the process of writing another book, just uh, one or two articles on this and that. But uh, if I'm still around, there will no doubt be further books, but I'm not. I'm not very clear about what they will be yet. Okay. Well, you've done more work than the vast majority of philosophers. So we really appreciate everything you're doing. Um, I, I look up to you as one of my intellectual heroes, and I thank you for everything you're doing. And um, may God continue to give you strength and wisdom as you uh, continue going forth and sharing what you've uh, learned and what you're doing. Thank you. I would ask your uh, hearers to pray that God may indeed do that. Well, Professor, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you.